You're listening to Tone Benders, the Sound Designers Podcast. Let's do this. Hello and welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Tim Muirhead. And I feel like I should be spontaneously breaking into song during this intro, because today we're going to be talking about the tricky art of doing audio post-production for musicals filmed for the screen. Helping me navigate this roundtable talk is my co-host today, Teresa Morrow. Teresa, are you ready for this one? I'm ready. And yeah, I'm going to let people know that maybe we didn't think we were actually uh, musicals types, <laughs> but I think Tim and I both agree we realized that there's some very exciting complexity in the soundtracks we're going to talk about today. So yeah, I'm thrilled to have our guests with us. Yeah, we're living in this uh, kind of amazing little renaissance right now with the new West Side Story, Tick, Tick, Boom, In the Heights, the series uh, Schmigadoon, which I couldn't stop laughing. I really enjoyed that series. And then Julie and the Phantoms. Uh, we have guests that represent all of these and many, many more today. So let's introduce them. Uh, first up, we have Paul Sue. Paul was the supervising sound editor and re-recording mixer on the recent film, Tick, Tick, Boom. In addition, he was also the mixer on two other music-based films this past year, uh, With Respect and Summer of Soul. Welcome to the show, Paul. How are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. Excellent. Next up, we have Brian Bowles. Brian was the supervising dialogue editor on In the Heights, which I super enjoyed. I had a great time watching that. In addition to that film, Brian has also worked on many other musicals, including Beauty and the Beast, The Greatest Showman, Into the Woods. Damn, Brian, you've been doing a lot of these musicals. Welcome to the show. Hi, it's good to be here. Thank you. Now we also have Amber Funk with us, which is great because I don't think we've ever had a music editor on Tone Benders before. Amber was the music editor on the recent film A Week Away, which was a summer camp musical, as well as the series Julie and the Phantoms. It'll be great to have a music editor talk, especially for a talk about musicals. Welcome to the show, Amber. It's great to have you. Great to be here. And continuing in the musical series genre, we have Cormac Funge, who is the supervising sound editor on the hilarious Schmigadoon. Welcome, Cormac. Hi, Tim. It's great to be here. Awesome. Okay, and finally, we have our returning champion, Steve Bissinger, who is the lead SFX editor on the recent remake of West Side Story. Longtime listeners might remember Steve from his last appearance on our show back in 2017 in episode 58. Welcome back, Steve. It's good to talk to you again. Thanks. Great to be back. Awesome. So we've got all the intros out of the way. Let's talk about working on a musical. In a perfect world, uh, every film, the dialogue, SFX, and music departments would be in steady communication, working as a common unit. But we know that's not always the case in reality, where deadlines are looming over everyone. But I imagine working on a musical, there's a much higher need for interdepartmental communication. Is that true, and how do you manage that? Paul, why don't we start with you uh, as a supervising sound editor? How do you make sure that the dialogue, music, and sound effects departments are all on the same page? Well, I mean, it starts with a, a lot of, as you alluded to, just a lot of conversations early on, a lot of back and forth. And for me, it's always, it's about the sound design and the integration happening in the, in the Avid, in the picture, picture edit, right? So everything feeds through them and they, and they make those, we don't really talk about that much, but they make the real decisions of like where, where the sound design beats are, where the, where those rhythmic elements really happen, what the, the real strong points are going to be. And then of course, from there we refine and we, and we, we, you know, go back in and, and get into the details, but they're, they're really the hub of like where those sound decisions get made. For sure. Brian, how about the difference between working on a standard project and a musical from a dialogue editing perspective? Uh, surprisingly they're, you know, they're not that different, you know, it's all about cleaning up the production sound and keeping everything in sync. Um, but with a musical, it's finding the right way to, transition from the production track 
into whatever the music track is going to be, whether it's a needle drop style piece straight from the studio or if it's going to be something that was recorded live and sung on set, you know, finding the ways to shake hands with those two worlds. But, you know, providing tone fill throughout the entire musical number so that the production dialogue doesn't seem to flip out and go away and then filling it back up with all of the things that are missing with the loop group and as much movement that you can put back in from set and and really trying to make it as organic as possible. Yeah, on Schmigadoon, we definitely had some interesting stuff with that because it was all, uh, all the songs were sung live on the set. So our transition between the song and the music when we finally get the music back is seamless. It's one of those rare occurrences on musicals where people burst into song and you're like, wow, they're really bursting into song. But it did lead to a lot of interaction between us and the music department, cleaning up stuff, taking it from them. I mean, at times doing work on the stage for some of the songs while we were mixing other episodes to clean things up and make sure that if we had used alternate takes or even in some cases little snippets of the pre-record for clarity to match those back in to go back to the music department so that they could mix them before sending it back to us at the stage to mix again. There's an awful lot of mixing. (laughs) Musicals seem to make a lot of mixing. It's very true. Cormac, do you have a sense of how much of the pre-recorded track ended up in the show versus what was recorded on the stage? Um, Oh, we're talking words. I think there might be one song, but otherwise pretty much every song is live and recorded. I mean, it was all... Broadway musical people, so they're used to coming out and doing the song eight times a week. So, you know, they come out and they warm up and they do the song. It's it's a it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it must be incredible to witness. <laughs> and Amber, how do you find the difference between working on a musical versus a more straightforward production in terms of the music edit? It's actually a lot more work. A lot of mine have been primarily in TV, so it's sort of a different beast. Um, I think then the features where a music editor is usually on right away in, you know, talks for pre-production, they're usually around for production on stuff that ends up like on Disney Channel or on TV. You you generally don't get to start that early and you come in kind of late in post, which makes your job a lot more difficult, I think, in a lot of ways, because the lip sync has to match. You have to work on the pre-records. A lot of times you're working with song producers who have not done stuff for movies or television. The types of splits you have to get from them are very different than what they're used to making for albums. So you have to have a language for music in the album world that then you can help them translate that into what you need for TV, which is very different. And sometimes you're lucky and you get to talk to them beforehand in the recording process, which helps because nowadays a lot of them go directly into auto-tune and that auto-tune gets printed right to the vocal track. And that can be problematic when you have to have a dry track to put it up the center channel to make it seem like it's coming out of their mouths. (laughs) So I think a lot of times that's not properly addressed, but in terms of like having to deal with the different song producers and getting the different splits. And then often you're having to cut the songs up to fit in scenes that they've done in between verses or whatever. And sometimes picture editors, as much as, you know, we all love them. Sometimes they do not put in proper bars of music 
And so now you have to make it sound musical in between those, those places, which can sometimes be a challenge. So yeah, I mean, it's a lot more work. It's a lot more managing of files. It's a lot more work. And on my end, at least in TV, and I know in features, a lot of times they get the chance to sort of re-record to the picture to get better lip sync. But in TV land, I am cutting the lip sync. Is what we have is what we have, you know? <laughs> so the two things can be very different, but on either side, feature and TV, it's a lot more work than just your standard feature or television show. You're talking about how important the way in which those pre-produced tracks show up or are recorded or are laid out, uh, how important that is. Do any of you attend or have any of you attended those music and vocal sessions? And if so, what kinds of things can be done at that stage that are going to help the soundtrack mesh later on with all the other sound elements? Does anybody have any experience with that? I've been on a show recently. They've actually done something very interesting that I think has helped a lot with transferring from dialogue to the songs, which is they are actually recording vocals with like a, a shotgun mic in a very similar space to where they're filming. And it's giving it a very similar sound and making it a lot easier to transition. That is the thing I found the most helpful, actually. Yeah, and that's definitely a part of it. And it's funny because, you know, Amber was describing the intensity of the TV world where it's, you know, everything just has to happen really quickly. There's not a lot of people. And in a way on features, sometimes we kind of, we go off the deep end in the other direction where, you know, like Todd Maitland recorded Tick, Tick, Boom. He does an amazing job. Um, and he did uh, West Side Story, too. So between us, there's a lot of really nerdy mic choices happening and people like me going to the studio to bring the lav that I know is the same lav that was used on a certain scene or a certain day and just as, as much of that as we can do to like bring the odds in our favor so that if it if it's going to sound the same the best chances are like Amber was saying in the same space maybe the same mic you know as much as you can bring the odds in your favor. Yeah, my understanding is on West Side Story. I wasn't there, but when they did the pre-record, and actually they re-recorded all the music after the pre-record, but they had a whole lot of mics on the singers, including trying to get the same one from the set. I think most of it was pre-record, but there was definitely some songs that were sung live on the set. Exactly. And some, and, and a lot of mics is really, it's like, you know, mixers have a tendency to be a little bit, uh, shall we say, on the know-it-all side, right? But it really comes down to, it's just luck a lot of times. So you just have, you have enough mics, you know that of the four or five options, one's going to work. It's, it's, I always think it's like, it's like fishing. You just have to cast out a, a lot of lines and, and as long as one of them works well, then, then you're good. Yeah. We would often do ADR sessions and, and put up studio mics instead of the ADR mics and, uh, and get people to give us the transition from the lines in sync on, you know, on screen into the singing with the music people in our ADR sessions instead of doing it as a vocal session. So we would be doing both sides of it. Then that material would go into the, the music world as a bit of ADR to try and cheat the handoff so that the, it wasn't as needle droppy when the music would start. So that's definitely something we've done a lot. Yeah, that really helps. And I also find that if you have a dry track, if you are using the pre-record and you're not using a production track or one that has been recorded in a similar space, if you take the verb away at the beginning and slowly introduce it in the first verse to maybe get it up to the first chorus, that also can help a lot um, mm -hmm. in those transitions. 
I feel like the verb is sort of the tricky aspect of that transition. That's what you always hear in the old movies is like the way the verb is acting on the vocal is like the signal that everything is flipped over to that other world. And what you guys are all doing so well is is smoothing that line out. So it just seems like verb is like just so crucial. Oh, for sure. And I mean, technology's come a long way. I mean, the convolution reverbs and that kind of stuff, we have just so many more tools to do that. But yeah, I mean, that's definitely, for a feature, it's it's just a process of experimentation, you know, of trying to find that balance. Because, you know, with verb, it's really about people not noticing it, like you're sort of alluding to. Like, it's got to, it's, it's there, but if you don't know it's there, then it's right. And so once you get to the place where nobody in the room, no, none of the producers, no, the director, no, none of the music editors say, what, what, what's that verb? Then you found, you found the right one. That's <laughs> the... And in terms of the the multiple take and the re-record thing, like those whoever the you know department heads are, who those of us who do these kind of podcasts and stuff, it's worth mentioning that certainly on a feature, I mean it's a small army of people that are prepping the stuff. There's like on Tick Tick Boom, we had three music editors just dealing with vocals, and there's a lot of people, a lot of hands on deck who are like getting every track to be the best it can be, you know, to to bring it to the final end. So with musicals, there's a weird thing that goes on in the brain of someone watching it because we all know that people don't burst into song in real life. But at the same time, in a musical, emotions are conveyed in a more effective way than sometimes regular dialogue can do. So it's both not realistic and then emotionally it's kind of hyper-realistic. And I'm wondering how we can go about building that with sound. Steve, we haven't really talked to you much yet about the sound effects. And also, Paul, I read somewhere that Lin-Manuel Miranda doesn't like Foley. So maybe we can talk about how getting in and out of those songs beyond the vocal change, the change in tone all of a sudden that maybe Foley ambiences and sound effects play a part in. Steve, did you want to talk about how you work on those scenes in West Side Story? Well, it's interesting. And I think this was a way that West Side Story might have been a little bit different than some of these other shows. The sound, it never goes away. We're always in the real world or our fake real world. So it was really kind of a pretty fully realized sound effects job throughout. And the main difference I would say is when we got into music areas, and actually I would say even in non-music areas, I was, but in the music areas in particular, I really was trying to work the sound effects in a way that I, where I thought that Leonard Bernstein might be proud of having it as a, as a percussion part of the music to the degree that that was possible. I don't know if I succeeded in that, but I tried. So that for me, that was the main difference and of course, you know, you have to be cognizant of anything tonal, you know, when you're working against music. But in terms of transitioning, it wasn't as much of a deal because we were already there and that world continued under the music. Paul? Yeah, I mean, Foley's an interesting thing because, I mean, Tim, to your point about Lynn and him, well, he calls it Big Foley. He's like, which, by the way, <laughs> Big Foley could be, a, you know, a cup down on a, on a table. <laughs> but nonetheless, he, his, his idea of, of what bad Foley is, is what we do on movies all the time, right? We're, we're creating an artificial world and it's all taste. Like how loud it should be. You're, you're always trying to ride that line of like, well, some directors love all kinds of very forward sound effects, big punches, all that stuff to them is just very natural because that's their taste and their aesthetic. And other directors, even the slightest thing. And I think, you know, uh, Lynn's definitely a, a director like that where it has to, it's like he has to not know it's there. And a lot of times, even though he says he doesn't like Foley, there's Foley in every one of those scenes, and there's lots of it. But he just he just doesn't want too much, is what he means. So, and that's all to taste. It's only to taste. Yeah. Well, that's the thing that takes you out, especially in a musical, when 
you've kind of gone into a musical number and then you hear like slap 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 slap. <laughs> like that's what why why am i hearing that person's feet I'm, i don't want to pay attention to that right now i'm in the musical moment like that is like a key thing is like getting that level right but can't can't get rid of it or you can Carmack. In Schmigadoon, we started from the point of Cinco telling us that at the start, he wanted it to be MGM musical style so that it would be nothing but music. You know, of course, that the minute you start to see it, you're like, we're going to do some Foley for these things. Now, unlike West Side Story, where like, yeah, I could tell that was fully filled the whole way through. That was everything was going. We very definitely did go into uh, this other world. But some of those, because the people are supposed to be singing right in front of you, you have to have some of those things, the dress movements, but not like an overwhelming amount of it. And it's always, as Paul was saying, it's that taste line, like, where do you get it, where you feel it, so that you believe the existence, but don't intrude where you think, what is that sound? When I was watching that and some of the other ones, I wondered, it wasn't, like you say, there wasn't sound going throughout. And I wondered how the decisions were made about like what because there'd be just like a certain sound to be placed at a certain time. And then there'd be other things that were just very prominent that were not, it seemed like. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know that there's really any answer to that other than it's from the moment and, you know, with the mix and a reaction of a producer, a director going, yeah. like, no, I don't want to hear that. It's true. I mean, taste, you know, and, and what's in and what's out, like loop group is one of those things that from musical number to musical number, like it's either in the background or it's not, you know, on in the Heights, we did six or seven days of recording for loop group to fill up all of those streets with enough people to actually be people. But uh, on Greatest Showman, there was almost no loop group in the background of any of the songs at all. You know, they they wanted it to become a musical number and so some backgrounds and some foley would continue, but the people would just completely disappear. And then Beauty and the Beast was a mix, depending on what scene you were in. But as a Disney big musical number, everybody knows those songs. They don't want them to be muddied up with other voices or other things in the background. So even getting foley in on those songs was very difficult. So like each movie has its own flavor and then within that, each song has its own flavor. So sometimes they're huge spectacles and sometimes they're really intimate with nothing else really going on. There's also, there's a, this is a little technical, but there's also sort of like a dithering noise floor thing too about Foley, which is in a way that more is less. So like on Tick, Tick, Boom, Todd recorded every song, he would have the actors do the scene miming so that we had, so we had live Foley of just them actually in the scene. And it's quite noisy. And that actually creates this bed of noise that then lets you actually put more Foley in. And then, then you somehow, you fly under the radar. It's like your, your ear is a, has become attuned to this sort of low-level noise that is very messy and, and just all over the place. And then, then that can allow you to sort of like add a little more of, you know, discrete effects and Foley and stuff into it. It makes a, a massive difference because then a, a, any director who's more into a grounded sound, they, they, they respond to that. And then now you have a, a, a baseline from which you can start adding things. Afterwards, I went back to work on the Foley and some of the dance numbers. And I was lining, you know, I was cutting it all to picture and making the sync right and everything. And it was not feeling right. And I realized, or I think somebody else told me this. They said, you know, dancers move their feet to get their body in the right pos rhythmic position at the right time and their feet are not necessarily hitting rhythmically. And so I recut one of the scenes, like chopped it to hell and turned it into like 
really super rhythmic, you know, thing that made sense with the music. But, you know, it was something I hadn't thought about before. That's actually my biggest thing is like, I love Foley and sound effects in music as long as it's, you know, working and everybody is happy with it. My biggest problem usually is with dancers' feet because when you cut the Foley to match what their feet are doing, it's not rhythmic like you're saying. And then that to me is the one thing that really detracts from from the music. So when you make it rhythmic, it feels like it adds to the music and adds to the excitement and makes it feel more alive. And that is one of my biggest things when I'm watching musical numbers and listening to them is like, how have you done the the dancer's feet? (laughs) Yeah, because everything has to serve the music in those moments. Like effects is music. Dialogue is music. Everybody's music at that moment, right? Well, exactly. And, and ironically, it, it actually speaks to like the, the jobs that people like Steve and Foley editors do, which is there's a, an inherent musicality to good sound effects, sound design, like the, even if it's not a musical. And then that's, that's, it's essential. It's like, you know, like a good Foley pass is three things. You do it to match production, then you do it to be correct, and then you go back a third time and you just sort of make it all fit so that it's sort of atonally musical, if I, I guess is what I would describe it as, you know. Yeah. Foley editors always aim for sync with what's on screen. And that's not for a musical. That is just not, doesn't ever work. I always end up, I have to take it and make it be right with the music. So how far can you go with that? Like, uh, are we talking a couple frames or are you going five frames? Uh, How far can you go with it? Well, I don't think I ever went five frames. That would be pretty out of sync. But, well, I'd look for a logical musical place that was maybe within two frames, say, you know, whether it was a quarter note or an eighth note or a six, even down to a 64th note. One of the things that really was a challenge for me is they did a pre-record and then they went back and re-recorded all the music with uh, Gustave Dudamel. That was at the very end, of course. We're already mixing at that point, right? And, I mean, I was getting super tweaky with the sync, like down to quarter frames and stuff. Really... That was not even about sync so much as it was more about just like, I wanted it to swing. I wanted it to feel like just grooving, you know? And, you know, sometimes you have to get that specific to do it. And so then we got this, the, the music redone, which was done, you know, exactly in time to the original, but nothing's that exact, you know, there's going to be a little bit of slip in there. And and so I went back, actually, you know, Gary was mixing away and he had me going through the, uh, through the pre-dubs. So everything was already mixed together at that point. It made it a little more challenging. But, you know, he was like, just go through and see where you can kind of, like, move things a little bit to make them just a little bit more musical. And that turned into a big project for me. Can we talk about tempo? I was wondering if working on, like, a pop genre or hip-hop where the tempo is really tight and possibly fast, whether that presents more of a challenge or if it gives you any opportunities as opposed to an orchestral thing. Amber? Yeah, I think it depends. On most pop songs, like I find you get a little more leeway, but on hip hop stuff, it's so syncopated that moving stuff, even like a quarter of a frame sometimes can feel like it's out of the pocket of the music. So it's really a lot of trial and error with that. Um, As a general rule, I would say anything more than two frames, you're going to feel it out of the pocket of the music for sure. Um, You can get away with a little bit more on like some ballad stuff, but hip hop can be really tricky. And if you're cutting lip sync in there off more than like a frame, you're definitely going to hear it. What I was noticing in um, Tick, Tick, Boom in particular, I was like, oh, this must have been so hard because the tempo of the song is is really locked you in. 
I was also noticing at the same time, like uh, in other ways, maybe it the hip hop genre or like the pop genres or the rock genres really was giving you opportunities to make clean breaks in ways that like a softer style of music wouldn't allow you to make clean breaks on a cut or something like that. Yeah, but there's also a lot of behind the scenes stuff that goes on too. So the music, like on Tick Tick Boom, the music editors are literally tempo mapping the entire time. So they tempo map along with the picture editor. So that way it's harder to fall off the rails because like every day they update the tempo maps, they work in concert really to try to make sure that they can maintain tempo and adjust tempo as they need. And then the picture editor can make further adjustments from there, which is very different, of course, than like cutting against like an existing track because you kind of have control over, over how fast the song is because then the, the orchestrator will go in and then follow suit. So in that way, the picture editor can take the upper hand and, and make a cut knowing that the tempo will be adjusted. And I will say that orchestral stuff obviously is going to be a little bit harder because they'll have more tempo changes and you know different time signatures that might happen. And so that might be a little harder than, like you said, like a hip hop to make a clean break and come in at a different spot or whatever if you're wanting to pause for a second or whatever the thing might be um, that you're doing creatively. Um, and we do not necessarily get the uh, luxury of tempo mapping. So a lot of that, you're just trying to figure out how to get there. Like I said, it's backwards. You're working backwards. <laughs> so um, that makes it a little bit more challenging, I think. Uh, but hip hop and pop are definitely make it easier because you've got your chorus, you've got your verse, the music is the same. With stuff that's like orchestral or Broadway or jazz, it, that's not necessarily going to be the case. And it's going to make it harder to make those adjustments. So. So let's talk about the idea. Uh, a lot of the projects we're talking about today were originally musical plays, like uh, theater, live theater. And what we're trying to do with the sound is to make a film. You know, it is musical, but it's a film or a TV show in uh, Schmigadoon and uh, Julie and the Fandom's case and such. What I'm wondering is how you go about taking it off the stage and putting it into the play. Uh, for instance, Schmigadoon kind of leans into the uh, stereotypes of the musical genre, where uh, West Side Story, uh, particularly The Brawl, was leaning away from the stereotypes of musicals. How do you tackle that, making it feel less like a play and more like a film or TV series? Uh, Cormac, do you want to take that first? I don't know that I'm the best one to talk about that because the point of it was to lean into it. It was all shot on stages, so it has a very, everything about it is kind of very artificial and deliberately so. I mean, there's the great work that you guys did in West Side Story and in Tick, Tick, Boom, like that complete naturalistic soundscape just doesn't exist. We spent an awful lot of time just dealing with like, well, what words are we going to put in here? We have birds and insects and a little bit of group for people out there. But like there's no dog barking. There is no cars going, you know, there's none of the other, the mess of the world that exists. So I didn't really have to deal with a lot of that. But there is the mess of uh, it was all shot. I, I don't know this. I'm assuming it was all shot in interiors, but lots of it is in a kind of made up exterior so I'm assuming you had the opposite of what we were talking about with verbs earlier of removing verbs. Uh, yeah, you know, they did a really good job in shooting it that there wasn't so much of that that we had to worry about. And again, the artificiality of it lends itself to not worrying that, you know, you're in this MGM world, which was all on sets. So if there is some of that, there's not as not as big of a deal. Steve? 
Yeah, well, I mean, this is an interesting topic, actually, for West Side Story. My understanding is that Stephen Sondheim was not happy with the 1961 version because it was so sort of, you know, it felt like a they, they filmed a, a theatrical production, basically, which they sort of did. And it's brilliant in its own way. But, and I know Steven Spielberg really wanted this to just, you know, both of them wanted this to be much more visceral. I mean, you know, when the rumble happens, they wanted to feel the danger and they wanted to, you know. So we went full on. You know, and I mean, I, I, I'm not sure. I think they're playing very low, but I mean, I did all sorts of creepy tones, sound design stuff um, that I think made it in some places and not in others. And like I said, it's a fully realized feature film score. I mean, you could strip away the music and it would sound completely filled and hopefully great. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, sort of what Steve's alluding to is it's almost like, you know, is, is a, it's a question of, do you put the musical in the film or the film in the musical, right? So it's, it's, if it's a film, just a film that we would mix that is any standard genre other than musical that has from a mixing standpoint, there are certain baselines, certain ways that you know, you want the dialogue to feel the sound effects to feel. And so for me, it's about using that as the establishing point. And then the music is going to be you know, produced within an inch of its life and amazing and sound great. So then how do you insert that into the process of making a film? And as long as you can find that balance where the music comes out of the film rather than the other way around, then I think then you've, you've achieved that, that, that goal of making it be naturalistic. Yeah, I think, I think here they really wanted it to feel like you were in New York, you were with these people. When they started singing, they were there in those locations. You know, it wasn't pre-record at all. I mean, I felt so lucky because obviously Bernstein's music is just brilliant. And there's, but there's, you know, there's places like the beginning of the rumble, the music is really sparse. So there's a lot of room for interplay. You know, you get a little fragment of music and you get a little bit of sound effects. And, and it was really fun to play around with that. Uh, as, here's a thing that happened for us on um, going into the mix in the transition from music into film or television. The music mixers being used to usually working in the, in prepping stuff for songs they work everything in stereo so when they re-record all the chorus we get all the chorus tracks coming to us just in left right stereo in a show where the concept is that the people are you have to really feel that people are singing right in front of you so we did a lot of uh i spent a lot of time with joe barnett the mixer like figuring out which points to fold everything back in so that we got that feeling of the immediacy, which the stereo was not giving us. Yeah, well, that's and that's a that's funny you bring that up because that's a we could do a whole segment on that just with mixers about the theoretical idea of center versus left right and and how how you deal with that. My like I did the same thing on respect. Like my idea of is is it's very very straightforward, which is if they're singing on screen, it should be in the center, <laughs> and then the band can be all around them. They could be full atmos surround all kinds of stuff because that those instruments we psychologically i think we react more to like those filling the space but the 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 cinematic component of hearing a voice like you said in front of us it's got to be mostly in the center and that's 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 a particular view on it but that's one one way to go so brian when you get a track of dialogue and you've got a lot of these films that we've talked about there's the pre-recorded version of the song Sometimes there's the version of the song recorded live. Then also uh, people I've read get the actors after they finish shooting to go, you know, around the corner and record it again. So not live, but not in sync necessarily, hopefully works out in sync. And then you have possible ADR lines as well. How are you just managing all that material? I mean, sessions get really big and there's a lot of like region groups 
um, you know, with a lot of labels and a lot of, uh, you know, markers and things to try and keep track of things. But I'm working with the picture department and I'm working with the music department to juggle all of these elements. Sometimes it goes real smoothly and sometimes there's a lot of back and forth with, uh, you know, multiple passes being done of each song. And, uh, you know, you're flipping one in and you're replacing the other and you, then you have to go back and do a sync pass. And, you know, it's a, it's a lot of juggling back and forth. Um, but when it's, when it's moving well, you actually tend to have double coverage. And so it's much easier to know that, oh, I've got it in case the music department doesn't. Um, but they always do because they're on top of their, their material as much as anybody else's. The biggest challenge comes on mix day or like, you know, leading into the mix or an avid output when they've just gotten a new version in from the composer or somebody's just been in the studio and they've got all new vocals that they're flipping in or out, making sure that those new vocals work with what we've already been cutting and mixing and cleaning up and, uh, you know, getting ready for the next mix pass. So for me, I find that to be the, the biggest challenge the music re-recording process is moving at a different pace than the rest of the show. And, uh, you know, they've got actors uh, that I may need for ADR that I can't get for ADR because they are booked for two or three days in the studio just doing vocals. Um, when I, we could have maybe coordinated a little bit better and give me a couple of hours just to pick up a few technical things and some, you know, hand-holding things to get from production into the songs or back out. Or just a breathing pass is sometimes all you need to soften those edges. So like kind of optimizing when you have the actors in front of mics to serve both departments? Yeah, it would be, It's. I mean, it's a real challenge because it's two completely different worlds for two different purposes. Because sometimes they're going in and doing recordings for the soundtrack, not anything to be used in the movie. You know, they're doing the other version that's going to go out to the radio. Um, as opposed to the version that we're going to have in as part of our soundtrack. So um, you've got the music producers on the show, the music supervisors on the show doing one version. Then there's the version that we need uh, for the next pass. You know, you've got three or four different groups trying to schedule time with one actor for the same show. And uh, that becomes a real challenge for everybody. Yeah, and not being in front of the computer, it's it's a little hard to explain sometimes, but I think the part that Brian sort of gracefully glossed over is similar to what Steve was saying about the quarter frame moves. You know, all those hundreds of tracks, a lot of times what we're talking about is syllable replacement or consonant replacement. So it's like you have a playback track and then you've got literally a syllable or a half a syllable taken from a, a re-record and that's what makes it makes it play. And there's a lot of those really tiny little slices in there. Yeah, yeah, it's true. So, Paul, when you get the tracks to go into the mix theater, how do you want them delivered to you, these various types of uh, pickups and stuff like that? Well, <laughs> it's funny because I, I, have, I have an old old school mixer joke, which is all, all, all mixers basically always say one of two things, either, oh, that's great, you did it, or why didn't you let me do it? <laughs> like that, that whole how, how, how much to prepare it is always the question. Um, so it's always the simpler the better for me, for the editors to make a choice, have have the thing that, that they think represents, you know, the, the scene the best. Because especially with modern technology, there's so many, it's so easy to go back and make some changes if the director doesn't like it or if it's not working in the mix, we can adjust it. I love nothing more than a, a solid choice. Like here, you know, here's the comp track. This is what I think works. And if we in the room agree that maybe there might be a better thing, then we, we find it from there. 
but it's it's very it's very comforting to to for sound editors to deliver like the thing that they think works and then you just you trust and 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 then we can all agree to make changes but nothing worse than a bunch of choices that is like you know muted regions and oh well, there's this other thing and it's just it's a it's a distraction frankly so i got a question for everybody what is your favorite sound that you had to lose uh, because the music took precedent <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can tell you one. This is a good one. When I first started out, I was probably like 28, and I got given a huge sound design sequence in a film called Blown Away. And are you talking about in the movies, in these movies that we worked on, or are you talking about in general? I, I mean, I'll talk about any. I mean, any movie. I, I mean, I, everybody likes a good story. I was thinking. I was thinking specifically in musicals because you know we all bring everything fully fleshed out, and then the music plays and it drowns out. You know half of the best moments that we brought to it creatively uh, because it's at that point it music lives. Um, well, this is not I'm, a music. I'm happy to, I'm, I'm happy to listen to your story. No, 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 it uh, was it's just, a fantastic movie. You know, I, I was so excited. I was young. It was a huge sound design sequence. I got, I did the whole thing. I was like ready to see it go up on the stage and they had bought a U2 song for a lot of money. And the producer said, what's all that noise? And they yeah. just turned down the master <laughs> on everything I did. <laughs> Yeah. And that was the end of that. That was a lesson. <laughs> I could actually have one, which I know you probably wouldn't expect from a music editor, but High School Musical, the original, there was this whole basketball sequence that was supposed to then devolve into the song. And there was all this fabulous foley for it. And it all just got trashed. <laughs> and it was one of my favorite like it just the the way they built the way that it was built to get into that music and with the sneakers and the basketball and all the stuff. I know it's a cheesy movie, but like the way it was done was done really well. And then the studio was like, nope, we just want the music and trashed all of it. <laughs> Yeah, I have an example from West Side Story that in the rumble, you know, I did like a full on like sound design through the whole scene with cool, weird tones and all that sort of stuff. And I think some of it played. But, you know, that was an example like that. I thought it played really well. And, you know, I think it was probably distracting from the music, which is pretty awesome. Sure. And so, yeah. you know, they, they either they played it really, really low or they, they lost a lot of it. But, you know, that's just the way it goes. You know, you that's 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 the job. Yeah, it is the job. Yeah. So uh, then let's go out with a question Brian brought up earlier about uh, breathing. Breathing is a thing when people are singing, they're breathing huge. They got to suck in the air to get those big notes out. How do you decide, uh, I guess, Paul, you can jump in on this too, and Cormac, everybody. Uh, how do you decide where the line is on how much breathing you want to hear from the actors? I think it's the same theme that we talked about, about, you know, reverbs and Foley, which, you know, maybe is a little easy, but I think is really based in truth, which is it's all taste. You do it so that it feels right to you and then you play it for the director. And if the director doesn't respond correctly, you did it wrong and you go back and, and it's really about figuring. Really, it's, it, That's the a part of the job that people don't talk a lot about that I, I really enjoy, which is it's mixing is a certain and, and, and sound design and music editing. It's, all, it's sort of a, there's a, a real mind reading part of it where you, you have to really mind meld with the director. You have to start thinking like they think. And, and only when you get to the place where, you know, they are feeling what you're feeling, have you done your job? So. There's a cool moment in Tick, Tick, Boom around breathing where like it's obviously a production track because it's kind of over the top and they finish singing and they've been jumping around and dancing off the walls and then the song ends and they're both just like 
<gasps> it's like those breaths are right they're so great <laughs> it was just such a funny moment because like the whole production track was sort of fantastical but when it lands back in reality they're really reacting as though they were dancing around and it's just like it's just a neat little moment i love that spot I think sometimes on ours, we would cut the breaths and just volume graph them down so that they replicate like great singers have great microphone control so that you don't, you know, when you're hearing them live, you don't hear that because they move the microphone back and forth away. They'll move it away for the big note so that they don't overload it. And so they do that instinctively. So we would sort of drop a lot of the breaths down, but not lose them because then it feels like weird. You see somebody breathing and not hearing it, but treating it like it was part of a microphone movement rather than clearly we're getting lav and, and boom mics that are not doing that. I've had to cut out a lot of breaths because they're just not doing it. You know, they've either cut it from the picture or maybe the actor wasn't doing it right the same way, or even sometimes the other way around, you see them breathing and now you have to go find one of those breaths you cut out earlier and stick it in there because you don't have one. They're not breathing in the same place that they were when they, you know, were in the studio. So that's always interesting to me. And I don't think that gets really paid attention to a lot until you get to the mix stage. Well, uh, thank you everybody for talking with us today. I think this was really fun. This is a topic that I don't think really gets talked about very much. When people think about musicals, they think about uh, the recording studio to record the songs, not how you make it work within the context of a film. So uh, I really appreciate all of your expertise and uh, knowledge sharing today because uh, I found it really fascinating. So thank you very much. Yeah. Absolutely. This is a lot of fun. Thanks a lot. Thank you. What an inspiring talk. As the years have passed, I've been growing more and more fond of the entire musical genre, and I really love digging into the audio post-process with these wonderful guests. Stay tuned for another episode featuring Paul Sue from this talk. In about a month, you can hear us talking to him about one of his latest film projects. I have to say that this episode was an absolute beast to cut together and clean up. There were a bunch of technical problems with the recordings that needed a lot of attention and care, and we were lucky enough to have Paul Rowland slip on the superhero cape and tackle this episode so successfully that most of you wouldn't even be able to tell what those problems and difficulties were. Thanks so much, Paul. You worked some real miracles on this one. Paul Rowland is a re-recording mixer and sound designer based in Galway in the west of Ireland. You can find him on Twitter at AudioPost or at his website, AudioPost.ie. As a token of our appreciation of Paul, he will be getting a copy of the amazing sound library, Sonic Springs, from its creator, Katrina Amsler. This collection of springs being hit, bounced, bowed, and just frankly mistreated is a must-have. You can find a link on this episode's page on ToneMendersPodcast.com where you can go and check out this library for yourself. We have a lineup of amazing guests coming up in the next while, so please make an effort to listen in because there are some great talks coming down the pipeline. Feel free to help us spread the word via your social media channels or even by telling your colleagues at work. We really appreciate you helping people find our show. My name is Tim Muirhead, and on behalf of Teresa Morrow, thanks for listening to the Tonebenders Sound Design Podcast. Tonebenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. 
Just go to ToneBendersPodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. Are you looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? ToneBenders is part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.